We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 5. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it to Jeremiah chapter 5. If you have your app, your Ocean View app, you can start your Bible or uh, any other program you have. You know, as human beings, we all have four distinct relationships. Every human's got them. Whether they take advantage of them or not is their, their choice. But every person has the opportunity to have a relationship with God. God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, you have that opportunity to have a relationship with God. We all have opportunities to have a relationship with other people. We all have a relationship with the natural world that God created that is such an amazing world. And the last relationship was with ourselves, uh, with our own souls, when we're completely and totally honest with ourselves. And when we open up the book of Jeremiah and we make it to as far as chapter 5, it becomes completely apparent to us that for the people in the southern kingdom of Judah, all four of those relationships were in total disarray. And when a people group gets to that point, when their relationships with all four of those key relationships in life are in total disarray and disaster, that society, that people group is headed for total collapse. You know, God had shown them clearly, he'd laid out the very best way to live life, and they had rejected it. God had warned them repeatedly over the centuries. He'd sent the judges, he'd sent prophets, he'd sent kings and leaders and priests, and they had rejected them over and over and over. But even in the midst of that, God had rescued the people, sometimes incredibly, miraculously, and so dramatically. He would rescue them, he would bless them, he would care for them. But in the end, the people chose to reject God completely. So God sends his long-promised judgment on them. And God doesn't send that judgment because he's vindictive or he's mean or he likes to see people suffer. He sends the judgment because he realizes ultimately it's the only way he can get the people back on track. It's the only hope for the nation. And you know what? We realize that. If you've ever been a parent, uh, you realize that. That sometimes when your kids are way out of line, that the most loving thing to do is to discipline them, to get them back on track. If you just throw your hands up and let them go wild, they ultimately do damage to themselves and to others. And uh, back in 2002, I had an opportunity to lead a missions trip with a whole group from the church I used to work at in Victoria. We went to a little town of Jebel, Romania. Uh, it was an amazing trip. Lots of really, really cool experiences. Uh, but we knew the water in this town was not good for us Canadians to drink. That it would just make us so sick. Our systems couldn't handle it. Uh, so many waterborne diseases in it and all those things. So in all the months leading up to that trip, we had told the team repeatedly, when we're in Romania, we're in that little town of Jebel, don't drink the water. Don't drink the water out of people's taps in their houses where you stay. And certainly don't drink it out of the town well. And it honestly looked almost like that. It was just a pump kind of well. And... Uh, so then while we were actually in Romania, every morning we'd have a little team meeting, we'd, we'd pray, we'd do our morning devotions, and then we'd get fired up for serving that day, and we'd say, and by the way, don't drink the water, 
only bottled water. And so it got about halfway through the trip, and uh, one of our young uh, teenage girls, uh, lots of the teenagers on the trip made good friends with the youth in that town, which was amazing. And this one night, they kind of had this impromptu soccer game, and it was really hot there. And uh, so they're out playing, and they're just sweating, and they're all dying of thirst. And even though her head said, don't drink the water, she wanted it. And so she drank the water. And uh, poor kid, for the next three months when she was back home in Victoria, every morning she got sick. She would throw up every single morning. And uh, there was a huge consequence to doing the opposite of what she knew was right. Now, she was a wonderful girl, and we kind of helped her through that. But it made me realize that there are just flat out some people who can't learn any other way than the hard way. They have to suffer the consequences. And that's exactly where the people of Judah were at. All of God's other attempts to rescue, to save, to redeem them, nothing was working. And he came to the point where he says, okay, the only way you're going to learn is when you suffer the full consequences of my judgment. So we're going to jump in and look at how the people of Judah had turned away from God. Starting in Jeremiah 5, one th- verses 1 and 2. It says, Go up and down the streets of Jerusalem. Look around and consider. Search through her squares. If you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I will forgive this city. Although they say, as surely as the Lord lives, still they are swearing falsely. Jumping down to verse 7. It says, Why should I forgive you? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by gods that are not gods. I supplied all their needs, yet they committed adultery and thrown to the houses of prostitutes. They are well-fed, lusty stallions, each name for another man's wife. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on a nation like this? And then at the end of the chapter, it finishes off, a horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. And my people love it this way. But what will you do in the end? It's fascinating that God is even willing to make a deal with the nation. He says, if there is one person in this entire city of Jerusalem who deals honestly and seeks the truth and stops lying, I will forgive the city. Now that is the definition of a low standard. One person out of an entire city. And God gives an example. He says, although they continually say, as surely as the Lord lives, he said, they're they're swearing by my name, but it's a false swearing. There's no truth. There's no honesty behind it. And the sin of dishonesty is both against God and against other people. God makes that extremely clear in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 16, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Lying to God is both offensive to him and ultimately impossible. You can't lie to God. He always knows the truth. Lying against people is also offensive to God. Why? Because God knows that it is so destructive and harmful in our lives. Think of all the people who in their workplace have told lies. 
They always lose their jobs. It always creates chaos in the workplace. Think of all the marriages that have exploded because a spouse is lying to the other one. So the first thing we see God laying down a reason for this judgment is this idea of falsehood and lying and deceit. But the biggest single reason that God's chosen people have, are under judgment is that they have rejected him and all that he stands for. Again, the Ten Commandments laid out everything extremely clearly for the people of God. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. It's very interesting. Oprah Winfrey, the uh, talk show host, and I think she's got her own uh, TV cable channel now, and she said it was that statement that God described himself as a jealous God that caused her to turn away from the Christian faith, and she rejected the Christian faith of her childhood. She thought that the idea of, of jealousy was a petty human emotion, and that's beneath the character of someone who's supposed to be God, and so she rejected it all. Now, that's actually a misinterpretation of what God is saying there. God is saying he's a jealous God because he is jealous of his people. In the exact same way that a husband could be jealous of his wife. Now, if, if a guy came up to me and said, hey, your, your wife Lori is really great. She's a really nice person. And, and I feel I just want to get to know her better, get to know her one-on-one. -on -one. I was just wondering if I could kind of take her out on a date. I think I would probably have two reactions. Reaction number one, punch him in the head. That would be a really good idea. And then the second reaction would be, no. No, you're not doing that. And that's the sense that God is jealous over his people. They are his people. They're the one he, he caused the nation to be formed. He rescued them. He brought them all the way through a whole series of miracles, all the way to the promised land. These are God's people. And he's jealous for them. And he says, I am the one true only God. I don't want you to worship the gods of the Assyrians, the Canaanites, any of those other false idols and deities. God is a jealous God. But that's not the only reason. God knew that when his people worshipped those other false gods, the gods of Assyria and Cana and, and Moab and all these nations around them, he knew that what they worship ultimately determined how they live. And as archaeologists have dug up the remains of those Assyrian and, and Canaanite religions, they have found horrific inscriptions grotesque things that was involved in their worship. The worst thing about it, the most extreme, was they would take their own children and sacrifice them in the fire to appease those gods. It was evil. It was not a healthy form of worship. And God knew that if his people, who were supposed to be worshiping him, started worshiping those other gods, it would ultimately destroy them as a culture, as a people. 
Jeremiah 5, 7 through 9. Why should I forgive you? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by gods that are not gods. I supplied all their needs, yet they committed adultery and thronged to the houses of prostitutes. They are well-fed, lusty stallions, still neighing after another man's wife. You know, God had earned the right of devotion from his people. He had called them into being through Abraham. He'd rescued them and established them through Joseph in Egypt. When they were two million strong, he had freed them from Egypt through a massive series of incredible miracles. He got them to the promised land. Once they were there, he, he blessed them with incredible military victories and blessings of food and crops and livestock and houses. And he gave them a beautiful capital city in Jerusalem and, a, and an incredible temple, one of the wonders of the ancient world. God gave them all of that, plus he gave them a guidebook for how to live the law of Moses. He gave them the prophets and the wisdom writings, and they rejected all of God's goodness to them, and they ran after those Assyrian and Canaanite gods. And God's question rings in our ears, in, even or in the year 2017, millennia after these events. And God says, should I not avenge myself on a nation as this? So you might be saying this morning, okay, Darren, all that's really interesting. That's a cool history lesson. How's that actually relevant to us this morning? You know what? The same principle is vitally true for everyone who claims to follow Jesus Christ. It is so easy to try to follow Jesus plus whatever else. You can fill in the blank. Yeah, yeah, I'm totally following Jesus, but I also want to do this. And just like those people owed their full and total allegiance to God, we owe our obedience to Christ. It's not Jesus plus other things. There's an amazing scene in John chapter 6 where Jesus lays down some really challenging, difficult teaching. And then the, the Gospel of John records the scene. It says, From this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve, and Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And the challenge for you and I, just like it was for God's people in Jeremiah's day, is are we fully in, are we fully following Christ with our entire heart or not? For the backslidden, idol-worshipping people of Judah, it was, yep, we're going to worship God at the temple, and we're also going to have a little worship of Baal over here, and a, and a little worship of Artemis over here, and, and on the weekend, we'll go up on the high places, and we'll, we'll worship the Asherah poles. For us in the modern day, it's more like, yeah, I, I'm totally in, I'm following Jesus, but I'm also going to make all of my decisions about life based around myself. I'm going to run my life completely on the basis of self and selfishness. Maybe it's, yeah, I'm definitely a follower of Jesus, except I deserve to have a little happiness too, so it's no big deal if I'm a little bit dishonest 
at work. Everybody else is. It's, it's no big deal. Or I'm totally into following Jesus, but you know what? I'm tired of my marriage. I'm just going to have a little affair on the side here. I deserve it. Jesus says to the people in his church in Revelation chapter 3, he says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I come in and eat with that person and they with me. That verse has long been used to to think about how we would speak to someone who doesn't yet know Christ, a non-Christian person. But that verse is actually Jesus talking to the church, to people who already know him. Jesus looks at his followers that he's speaking to in that chapter, and he says a couple verses later, he says, I know your deeds. I know that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Those are some pretty challenging words from Jesus. And it ultimately causes you and I to examine our own hearts this morning and go, where am I really at? How do I really feel about following Christ? Is this a a lukewarm kind of halfway thing? And if it is, if that's the conclusion that you come to when you examine your own hearts, then I got a challenge for you this morning. I want you to be just like the people that actually listened to Jeremiah. And there were some in the nation that said, you know what? We have wandered away. We didn't even know we were wandering away, but we've wandered away. And they got down on their knees and they repented and they did a 180 degree turn. And they said, God, I am sold out for you. And that's how we need to respond to Christ. Well, studying prophets like Jeremiah from the first half of the Bible is really refreshing for me when I read it because they state it so boldly and so clearly. And one of the things that the prophets had a lot to say about was the second aspect that Jeremiah talks about. He said the people had messed up the relationship with God. They had offended God but they had also mistreated each other and everyone around them. And that's where our text moves us to. Let's pick it up in verse 26. It says, Among my people there are wicked who lie in wait, like men who snare birds and those who set traps to catch people. Like cages full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. They have become rich and powerful. They have gone fat and sleek. Their evil deeds have no limit. And they do not seek justice. They do not promote the case of the fatherless. They do not defend the just cause of the poor. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? And when you read the prophets in the first half of the Bible, you come to the unmistakable conclusion that God cares deeply about the poor and vulnerable in any society in any time period. The rich and immoral people of the southern kingdom of Judah were ripping them off. They were cheating them on the one hand and doing absolutely nothing to help the people most in need, the orphans, the widows, the foreigners who couldn't get going. All of that, they just disregarded. They didn't help them one bit. 
And then the words of God come to Jeremiah the prophet. They're so descriptive. They become rich and powerful and have grown fat and sleek. Their evil deeds have no limit. You know, when people intentionally take advantage of others and have no second thoughts about doing evil deeds as long as it benefits them, you know what they put themselves in? They put themselves in the position they're actually fighting against the will of God. Because God is for the poor. God is for every child who has no parents. God is for every widow left alone. God is for that bullied kid in high school. God is for everyone in our world who doesn't have clean water, who doesn't have enough food to eat. And if it ever, ever enters our thinking that we can love God, we can say to everyone, yeah, I'm following Jesus, I love God on the one hand, and we don't care about the poor and vulnerable and the starving and the diseased on the other, Jeremiah looks us right in the eyes and he says, think again. You cannot do that. To love God is to love others. In our vision statement as a church says we want to love God, love others, and serve the world. And serving the world, it turns out, is very much part of what it means to love God. The two are inseparable, linked hand in hand. Love for God, service to those most in need. Every once in a while, I need to quote Bono, the lead singer of the group U2. Now, Bono is a flawed individual. He's got a lot of, uh, a lot of th- crazy things he's done in his life. But I admire him because he has got a heart after God. And I want to show you an excerpt of a speech he gave to the African-American civil rights group in the U.S. And these are the words. This is how he ended his speech. He said, God has a special place for the poor. The poor are where God lives. God is in the slums. He's in their cardboard houses where the poor play house. God is where the opportunity is lost and lives are shattered. God is with the mother who has infected her child with a virus that will take both of their lives. God is under the rubble of the cries we hear during wartime. God, my friends, is with the poor. And God is with us if we are with them. And if the prophet Jeremiah was in that audience when he spoke those words, he would stand up and he would clap and he would say, yes, I completely agree. This week I totaled up. I said, I wonder how many exactly global missionaries our church is supporting. Turns out we support 13 full-time missionaries or organizations. And it's pretty broad, the amount of countries that they work in, from Ethiopia to Indonesia to Pakistan to Brazil to the Philippines. And during the last seven years, we have given away significant amounts of money to crisis needs around the world. There was a year where there was massive flooding in Pakistan, and we raised money, and that went to give medical aid and seeds and farming help to super poor people in Pakistan. When the Haiti earthquake hit, we raised money for that. Our ocean kids, as we heard this morning, have sent blankets and stuffies down to Mexico. Uh, We took up an offering and helped to raise money for Shikarpur Christian Hospital, which serves women and children in Pakistan. And as our church moves ahead in the years to come, I want us to increase that. I don't want us to retreat from that. I want us to be known as a church that cares for the poorest of the poor right here in Ladysmith and around the world. 
And I think if we wander off track, if we stop caring about that, I think God will probably send Jeremiah back from the dead to kick us in the rear end. So we have two causes of judgment. The people had rejected God and they had been abusive to everyone else. But we haven't actually heard what the judgment is and what God's eventual goal in all of this judgment is. What's God's end game in all of this? All right, first with the judgment, verses 14 and 15. Because the people have spoken these words, I will make my words in your mouth a fire, and these people, the wood, it consumes. People of Israel, declares the Lord, I am bringing a distant nation against you, an ancient and enduring nation, a people whose language you do not know, whose speech you do not understand. Their quivers are like an open grave. All of them are mighty warriors. They will devour your harvests and food, devour your sons and daughters. They will devour your flocks and herds, your vines and fig trees. With the sword, they will destroy the fortified cities in which you trust. Well, that distant nation, of course, turned out to be the nation of Babylon and their king, Nebuchadnezzar. And they did destroy many, many towns in Judah and ultimately the city of Jerusalem. They took most of the people into captivity, hauled them back all the way to Babylon. But embedded within Jeremiah's prophecies of judgment is also the redemptive will and grace of God. Because God isn't out to destroy them, he's out to discipline them. We see a glimpse of it in verse 10. Go through their vineyards and ravage them, but do not destroy them completely. Verse 18 and 19. Yet even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not destroy you completely. And when the people ask, why has the Lord our God done all this to us? You will tell them, but you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your own land. So now you will see serve foreigners in a land not your own. So now we come to the crucial point. Why is God judging his people so harshly? And all throughout the book of Jeremiah, God gives explanations. And I picked one verse from chapter 3, verse 22. He says, return faithless people. I will cure you of your backsliding. As I said before, the Jewish people had been in that continual cycle. God would bless them. Everything would be great for a while. And then they would wander away from God. They would stop worshiping God. And things would go downhill. And all of a sudden they would find themselves you know, armies coming against them, droughts, famines, everything's going wrong. They would cry out to God. He would come and rescue them. And then the cycle would start all over again. And it happened over and over and over and over again all throughout their history. And finally, God says, enough. And I love that statement. He says, I will cure you of your backsliding. The judgment is harsh, but it was needed and the point is to give the people a new heart. The point is to wake them up, make them committed to himself like they'd never been before. There was an American evangelist in the 1940s. His name was H.A. Ironside. He gives a great illustration. <clears throat> says there was a group of pioneer families making their way across the United States. <clears throat> And they had the big chuck wagon train and they're, they're heading out to homestead an area that the government had said, this is free land. If you can make it there and farm it, it's yours. So they traveled in these covered 
wagons. They were drawn by oxen. It was a really slow journey. And one day, they were horrified to see in the distance a huge, long line of smoke. And as they peered in the distance, they realized that the prairie grasses were on fire. And it was miles and miles and miles long. There was no escape from it. And everyone in the wagon train starts to panic. And they are frightened. And everyone's like, what can we do? And one guy says, well, remember when we crossed the river? If we could make it back there, maybe the river could save us. And they realized they couldn't make it in time. There was no way. And finally, one guy stepped up and he says, I know exactly what we need to do. We need to turn around and light the grass behind us on fire. Everyone says, are you nuts? Why do you want to do that? He goes, trust me, this will work. And so they lit the grass on fire and it burned that direction away from them. And then once it had burned this huge area, the guy said, now we have to go onto that burned out section. And they did, they moved everyone, all of their wagons, all of their livestock, everything onto that. And they could see the fire coming closer and closer and closer And one little girl screamed out. She said, are you sure we shall not be burned up? But the man said, my child, the flames cannot reach us here, for we are standing where the fire has already been. And in the Bible, from cover to cover, fire is always a symbol of God's judgment. And it's the opposite. It's counterintuitive to what we first think. But the safest place to be as a follower of Jesus is where the fire has already been. You know why? Because God's judgment of evil in our world and evil in our human hearts has already fallen on Christ. He paid the price for us. He took every ounce of God's wrath and judgment on evil in our world. And being in Christ is the safest place in our universe. And just like those grasslands that are already burnt up, so it is with followers of Jesus. Our sin is already judged, already paid for. And the other fascinating thing about a prairie grass fire is that it's necessary. When the grasslands are burned, there's something amazing that happens in the soil. It rejuvenates the soil. And when the, the rains come in the spring, the land springs to life, and you would never know there'd been a fire. But everything is healthier. And now it all makes sense to us when we read those words of Jesus again. He says, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So as we finish up this morning, Ocean View Community Church, let's learn from the past. Learn from the example of our spiritual ancestors in the kingdom of Judah. Let's heed the warnings of Jeremiah to never stop loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's never stop loving the poorest of the poor around us in Ladysmith and around the world. And when we do go off track, when the Lord does discipline us, Let's remember that he does it because he loves us. And we are so valuable to him that he never, ever gives up on us. Ray, come and pray for us. Awesome, let's pray together. God, you are gracious, and that is good because we are slow learners. 
You show us the way, but we are still convinced we can find some kind of shortcut, some way to repair the damage done to the world and the fractures in the human family that won't take too much time or effort. We keep looking for a way that is safe and certain and obvious and easy, but every apparent shortcut turns into a dead end. Save us from our own foolishness, we pray. Confound and confront us until we come to our senses. Teach us if we hope to accomplish any lasting good. <clears throat> we need your patience and your power. Grant us the spirit of obedience that we need if we want to be disciples. Console those this morning, God, whose eyes are flooded with tears, whose hearts are drowned by sorrow. Give rest to those who are weary with heavy, heavy burdens. Strengthen the resolve of those who are tempted. Calm the minds of those swarmed by anxiety. We pray faith and hope because you've already done so much for us. There is no doubt that your love is for us is real and reaches to the ends of the earth. As the psalmist says, there is nowhere to go where, we, where you are not already there waiting for us, ready to meet us, to lead us home again. We thank you for the teachers and mentors who have cared enough to speak truth and love to us. We thank you for insights that come after a struggle, for hard-won maturity and undeserved second, third, and fourth chances. We thank you for role models who are willing to be honest and who show us that you don't just call extraordinary people to follow Jesus. You call ordinary people and make them extraordinary in your power. And most of all, God, we thank you that you call us to stand where you have already received judgment, that we can stand where the fire has passed and we can stand in your mercy as adopted and chosen sons and daughters of God. Now continue the work that you are doing, O Lord, to make us extraordinary servants and witnesses for you in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.